a word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes, as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That would be through chapter 13, up until the end of part one of Brandon Sanderson's The Hero of Ages, the third installment in the Mistborn trilogy. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. Maybe a little less intoxicating today. I don't know. Previously intoxicating. I don't know. Yeah. This is your hangover podcast where <laughs> Crossland and I drink water, tea, and Gatorade. As as a note for anyone at home, we we aren't going to have a drink segment this week. I mean, I guess we'll talk about what we're drinking, but PJ kind of gave away the goat there. Not that there is any goat to get like uh, we drank too much last night playing games with our patrons, of which was an absolute blast playing Jackbox and code names with a bunch of patrons. And uh, you are in the just... bartender or above tier for our Patreon. You can join us once a month playing games drinking too much and don't usually drink give too it, much it was just giving us happened. hangovers i think it was i think it was the shot that bingham asked me to do that really pushed me over i think i was doing it was everything crossland it was everything i mean you know I, the other thing to consider is like manhattan's sneak up on me i found so i <laughs> in the born episode that comes out tomorrow that also it snuck up on me i was not blasted or anything but i was like "Ooh, i am more drunk than i thought i was yeah so yeah. that's that's what happens though when your drink is three ounces of alcohol with nothing else <laughs> that'll that'll do it a leftover i guess we can talk about what we drank yesterday um, yeah yeah what before we do that i just want to shout okay. into the episode today is our second episode discussing the hero of ages by brandon sanderson and we are going to chat about chapters six through 13 what were you going to talk about with what you drank yesterday a couple months ago in march for Kaylin's birthday, we did a tiki party because what else? What else are we going to do? Dressed up with Hawaiian shirts and drank punch. And uh, at the end of the night, there was a lot of extra punch. And we mixed them both together, threw it in the freezer. So it's been frozen for a couple months. And then we wanted more freezer space. So I took it out and thawed it and put it into some mason jars. And I had some of that. It was pretty strong to begin with, but I was adding more rum. So it was a nice, refreshing, rummy punch, mystery punch. And hmm. I had uh, 32 ounces of it. Oh, that I mean, that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> not quite. Not quite. I It was this jar, but it was like mm. that full. It was probably like, I don't know, 25, 25 ounces or something. Yeah, that was probably a good four or five drinks worth. Yeah, yeah, we were pleasantly toasted. We had originally planned on ending around like 1030 or whatever, and we went until. Yeah, but it was worth it. It was a lot of fun, but it was worth it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, we appreciate everyone who came out for that. And like PJ said, hop into the bartender tier and you can join us and understand our, our pain. Like I said, usually we don't drink that much, but man, we just we went for a long time. We had a good time. So to that point, I'm having water and tea today. So yep. I'm having water and Gatorade, Glacier Cherry, Frost, 
that's a good one. Yeah. I like I like most of the frost. I do mm-hmm. like the glacier cherry. Yeah. Cool. So before we talk about the chapters, how do you feel about this week's reading, PJ? What you what you thinking? What you feeling? What's the vibe check? I love this book. <laughs> I really love this story. There are a lot more questions and you are basically just laughing at me when I ask you things and not answering. Kind of true. That literally um, happened today. <laughs> so he I just sent questions. me a text and I sent an emoji back. <laughs> and that didn't say anything else. So clearly it is going to have a good payoff, but without knowing that, it feels like plot holes. But I trust I trust Mr. Branderson. So Yeah. The the fun thing in doing this reread in particular has been tracing back a lot of these lines with you and like you know, I get I have the foresight of the end, you know, in this past. So I, you know, obviously have all that and I can I can layer it on and be like, oh, there's more. Oh, 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 I saw that. Oh, that's mm, OK. There's a lot of that going on. A lot of a lot of mouth noises coming well, from me in that <laughs> sentence. True. I, I think I think what's so diff it's it's difficult because this book is a this not this book, this series is a masterclass in like execution from a like net perspective, but we aren't there yet. So like, I can't, I can't at the same time, you know, be like, yep. And I'm not going to say any more than that about it, but I will say that this is the section that when I, so kind of like we went over last week, I had a tough time with the first 60 pages of this book. When I read the first time, I was like, there's a lot that I don't like here. And I, this, this second half, colors so much of that first half and by that i mean the first you know this half of the part i was i was struggling honestly that that first section that you had me read struggling yeah and i i don't you know and we we tend not to be we we've only complained about two books and it's always like really complained i should say and it's been the first 60 pages basically of both books um between red rising and this one and the reality is, is that in a reread, it is good, but in s- siloed context, it just, it like, it stings a little bit in weird, funky ways. Mm-hmm. And to make you stop as well and to have stopped myself is frustrating because it is, you know, it does get so much better on the other side. The grass yeah. is greener. Very much so. so. Wanted to get that out of the way just because of how much Ellen bashing I did last episode on the top end. I'm just, you know, I, I'm reeling waiting for the inbox to explode with people being frustrated with my Ellen takes. So, yeah, we'll see if that happens. Yeah, I did. I did tone it down and we launched a giveaway. So I'm sure that, you know, assuage some some things in the long that's run. That's still going to be going when this comes out, right? Yeah, I guess that's kind of important to mention. Check it out on Facebook and Instagram. We have a giveaway going on. All requires tagging a couple of friends, letting them know we're giving away a copy of Elantris by Leatherbound, Brandon Sanderson. Right? A leatherbound, yes, leatherbound copy of Elantris by Brandon Sanderson. It is an unsigned copy, just kind of like the Mistborn one is, but it is nonetheless one of the leatherbounds. And part of the reason that we're doing that is a, we wanted to do another giveaway for the show, of course. And the other leatherbounds were sold out within the Mistborn series. But also this month on the short pour, we are going to be covering and talking about Elantris. So it also lines up basically with the release of that episode so it felt like a good way to kind of celebrate our our quote year two years of sanderson quote so yep yeah yep so go enter uh if you're a patron you are already entered so thank you Mm -hmm. yeah all right with that 
let's get into the chapters. We we start off here with chapter six, which is a very short chapter. It's one that I had considered tagging into last week, but I really liked beginning and ending this section with Marsh and kind of showing some some Marsh trajectory and path here. But yeah, it's it's really short and Marsh is absolutely not in control of himself and is noting a lot of things to us, you know, potentially as a vessel of ruin. And he's kind of commenting on the beauty of the ash falling when he's controlled by ruin, of which we see that kind of ebb and flow even in his perspective. It's it's almost it's so interesting to me because it's not an unreliable narrator but it has almost the the tenuous hand of a character that is kind of an unreliable narrator you know what i mean everything Mm -hmm. that he's saying is real but we can see the taint on his perspective when runes there right which is fascinating yeah there's i guess we we get more of this in his second chapter but there's the comments on some of the powers that were held back from the inquisitors by the lord ruler and i feel like that is a is a really nice, clever way to maintain the power structure between our heroes and these antagonistic inquisitors, keeping keeping them sort of in line with each other. But as always, poor Marsh, poor Marsh. Yeah, it it is it is definitely poor Marsh. That's a great point on the side of the the power level kind of scaling. Because it did seem like Vin could just manhandle inquisitors, and even Vin and Ellen taking out the one at the beginning of the story was was fairly you know insignificant it seemed as as far as a threat goes so it is i agree with you it's definitely a nice nice little tune-up that they get right yeah cool without without Um, being like cannon breaking you know yeah right Mm -hmm. and you know it's the the whole like pounding of spikes thing is also fascinating right like the the whole all the additional spikes and obviously i guess i shouldn't say obviously it seems obvious that there's something going on with this is this is an example of him, which is said a couple of times as well by Marsh that, you know, that's kind of what what they're going through and that he's driven some spikes himself and things like that. Did you have any mm-hmm. other thoughts on spikes or hemology after this week's Marsh? Um, the nothing new specifically in regards to Marsh or the Inquisitors, other than the fact that he's got a bunch of them. But there is the question that gets that, that'll that bring up during one of Tensoon's chapters, mm. which is the blessings yes. and how the, they might be <clears throat> directly related to hemolurgy. Okay. So. All right. We'll definitely right. talk about that in, you know, just a little bit here. Cool. So with that, we move into chapter seven. We have a logbook chapter here, uh, of course, at the beginning of the entry. Also, I think for the record, the audiobook actually works in this one properly on Audible and everything else. I think that it it sections off the chapters now with the headers accompanied through Audible. So, you know, there's not that bleed over listen. They do still announce the chapter after it's done reading, but you the marker mm-hmm. wouldn't flip out like we'll flip over to the next chapter. Anyway, point being easier to find, easier to listen to. We're still going to follow the same format, though, because we've followed that the whole time. So, you know, kind of always ending on a logbook, except for when it ends evenly on a part like this week. So um, cool. With that, we have the logbook. I speak of us as we, the group, those of us who are trying to discover and defeat Rune. Perhaps my thoughts are now tainted, but I like to look back and see the sum of what we were doing as a single, united assault, though we were all involved in different processes and plans. We were one. That didn't stop the world from ending, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. So there's there's some shit. There is this some makes shit it there. pretty clear that this is, like, confirms this is someone that we already know says it 
is still my assumption. And also that this is written very clearly in the future compared to where we are in the story right now, because the world's ended. <laughs> so there's that to deal with. That's a, that's a problem, I think. <laughs> but maybe actually could be it's kind of posited here that that it's not a bad thing that the world ended like kind of purged and started new is the read I get from there. I don't know. We'll find out not a whole lot to take from that yet, but yeah, not a whole lot that I can comment on here, of course. But I what I will say is that your previous prediction did also paint Tindwell in that space and that you were kind of dancing back and forth between the two. I don't want to. Yeah. You know, so I am going to turn this one into a prediction as well and just kind of tuck it in and accompany it. Yeah, so, well, I tucked Tindwill in there. I, I still like the thought of resurrecting Tindwill with one of the nuggets as they're referred to now. I yeah, when when they're referred to as nuggets by our narrator of the logbook, I I did immediately think like chicken nugget. Like, <laughs> <I know. laughs> like it, it feels like how we would disrespectively comment on the beads. Like, I feel like mm -hmm. beads is the more apt term that should be used, and we would call them nuggies, but, you know, turn it on its head, I guess. Yeah. 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 It, that is, like, I just, I am utterly blown away by the idea that it, it, it is so holistically something that we would say, and I cannot believe that it is in this book this way, because it feels like a meme that we would come up with. <laughs> You know, like this is pooping room like this. This is pooping room in book form, <laughs> you know, a little bit. But um, yeah. I guess when you're talking about like gold nuggets and stuff, it's mm -hmm. maybe not that far of a stretch. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's funny. It's silly. And I I really enjoy it. So getting into the chapter, I because I, I really like these this chapter. We are again with Tensoon and I I love the Chandra chapters inside of the story. I love them so much. I love the way that this one opens from the very first line of like they gave him bones all the way to the description of how he actually forms himself of like pulling them together and stretching the muscles and kind of stitching it. It's it's just for Brandon Sanderson. This is one of the most lovely descriptions of of something that he's given, I think. And I, I mean, lovely in the fascinating way, like in the in the truly it's a gripping description. Yeah. Yeah. As as he says, I, I really like this a little bit. His body wasn't that of any specific person. He would have needed a model to produce such a replica as well. And it's like that's another interesting thing that gives this kind of sovereignty over like the creation of bodies, too, which is fascinating. I think I, I think we'll have more yeah. to talk about there. Yeah, that is. It makes me wonder how what the process is when they're actually replicating someone. Cause they're obviously eating them, you know, like they, they don't, they're not looking at a model when they're creating their, their skin because it, it, the model's gone. They've eaten the bones, <laughs> eaten the bones, <laughs> eat the bones. <clears throat> um, well, they do leave the bones behind. They do. So like when they, when they make a oh, body, they do extrude the bones. If they want to switch bodies, extrude, they extrude the, the old bones, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like, for instance, when, Tensoon switches between the dogs. He does have to get rid of those bones because they were broken. So he like steps out of them and morphs into the other ones. Yeah, but he he needs to he needs to have more bones though. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He still needs bones for form. Right. I, I guess my point is when he's replicating a a host, not a host, mm -hmm. a, an individual. He's not looking at that individual anymore. 
Yeah. Yeah. Typically. So I'm curious what that process is in a more refined way. Sure. I'm sure we'll get something more on that. But anyway, I am mostly curious about in this section is what bones they gave him because apparently his approximation of a human based on the bones that he was given is a reasonable enough approximation of the person that those bones belong to. And it's somebody that presumably we already know based on how I'm assuming, I guess I'm assuming it's definitely somebody that Tensoon already knows. I, so correct me if I'm wrong and I don't think I am in this circumstance, but if I remember correctly, it's the other Chandra that's making the assumption that he looks very similar to someone like he's worn those bones before, I think is what Varcel says or whatever. And yeah. he's, it's like, no, I haven't. I've never worn these bones. And Varcel's making that assumption because he's worn human bones and all humans are the same. Well, but but he says these are bones of somebody that you gave us. Like mm, these were bones given by Tensoon. So I saw it more of a just commentary on like, oh, like you recognize these bones as opposed to just making the claim based on the fact that he creates it so well. I don't know. I guess it could go either way. Yeah. So it's, it's an assumption. I I just found the little section. I think, I think your, your context is correct though, if that makes sense. He hasn't actually worn those bones before. He's just so convincingly good at transforming that the fifth generation Varcel believed that he had worn those bones before. Because he, okay. he absorbed, like, he knew the structure and he knew where things should go. Yeah. Because Tensu literally says. So, I, page 65-ish, again, I'm using the Kindle. So, here's here's how it reads. Tensu stood, what he asked at, what he asked at the look in Varcel's eyes. I just picked a random set of bones from the storeroom, Varcel said. It's ironic that I would give you a set of bones that you'd originally contributed. Tensu frowned. What? And then he made the connection. The body that Tensoon had created around the bones must look convincing, as if it were the uh, original one that these bones had belonged. Varsal assumed that Tensoon had been able to create such a realistic approximation because he'd originally digested the human's corpse. Gotcha. And therefore okay. knew how to create the right body around the bones. But he assumed. Now I understand. Yeah. And also now that gives me more understanding of the question I brought up earlier. So yeah, it, it, it points to skill. Like it, it points to Tensoon's genuine capability as a Chandra as well, which I think is a fun twist on top of it because they kind of seem amorphous and like they would just all be able to have the same capabilities and qualities. And they don't. There's, of course, there's diversity among them. They're, mm-hmm. they're species just like anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Gloopy, globby species. Yes. Yes. There are some really fun. There's some really fun fan art. Of Chandra and of even some of the ones that we've already seen of like the different renditions with like wood and crystalline and, you know, stuff like that. So it'll be fun once we get to the end to review some of those, too. You know, thinking about the way that these form, what do you think about the true body that is captive our cell of the seventh generation wears or fifth generation? Excuse me. Last week, you're asking, why not? Why can't they be X? Why couldn't they absorb X? And kind of that was a question that you'd pose or like, could they do this? You know, and I, I thought that these were really fun examples. I knew that they were coming. I didn't realize that it was coming so soon. I thought it was like another week or two out. This the description of the true bodies is way cooler than anything I could have come up with on my own. <laughs> yeah, um, they're neat. Like it's turning bones into jewelry. It's fucking awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. It is it is very much like I mean it's like fashion, it's like clothing, right? It's it's mm-hmm. a way that they express themselves too in addition to the way that they 
construct their bodies, they also like flow. Yeah, so fascinating. I, I like the jewelry comparison because it's definitely a choice. And that's why the 10th generation, excuse me, 10, is it the 7th? The later generations. I think it's like 7, 8, and 10 or something like that, they say, or, you know, rebelling so much with like weird bodies like Milan, uh, Milan. And and her friends, you know, the one with wood and the one the you know, she's got mm-hmm. like the glass and some of the second generation have those really rigid crystalline bones. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, just, it's, it's cool. It's so fucking cool. Yeah. Um, not a fantasy creature that I have ever experienced before. Nothing like it. Even doppelgangers truly don't do enough <laughs> justice to explaining what a chondra is. No. So, again, there's more wonderful world building on the part of the Chondra. Um, sparkling rods that Tensoon identifies as the blessings to us, the uh, reader, and kind of more descriptions of the different generations. Like we said, this this section does a great job of, of world building. It is a lot more. It is both simultaneously some of the most impressive flexes of Brandon Sanderson showing and some of the most egregious tells <laughs> Because he does just kind of say things from Tensoon's perspective inside of his head to explain stuff to us that mm-hmm. I don't think Tensoon would actually feel the need to <laughs> explain because he's lived around this for so long. So anyway, regardless, point being, what do you think um, of the description of the blessings and stuff? Yeah, so I I know I just mentioned it with Marsh and, mm-hmm. and Hemalurgy a little bit, but did I bring this up last week to you or on the air or just in my head? About like wondering where their powers came from. I can't um, remember. Like I know I thought about it and I know I was like curious. I just don't remember if it was out loud. But either way, this this partially answers, I feel like, that line of questioning being that it seems like it's similar, if not the same process that the Inquisitors, the Inquisitors go through for their powers. Totally. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think that it is it does seem as though there's there's some tendrils of connection there, too, between the blessings and the rods. Right. There's something mm-hmm. there. Could be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But Could we be. have had, I think, two blessings identified at this point. Potency and meaningly. This is why I like the Kindle blessing. This is this is the this is the real reason that I bought this is because it's really easy to search and find things as opposed to doing what we're doing presence was the other one right so yeah with those two blessings you've got you've got like an interesting picture of like well what the fuck is this <laughs> which is which is fun and interesting it is we'll have to can see you have multiple else. i'd assume so yeah. why do some yeah. have them and why do others not is it a reward that was very tom <laughs> segura of you <laughs> it was very funny i just have to give you props because it was funny the chapter ends with uh, ten student recounting what he has to do convincing the first generation that he did the right thing in his betrayal obviously we are literally going to go through the rest of this trial over the course of this but you know yeah yeah i i just i'm really enjoying ten student's perspective through and through it's very perceptive and deliberate in all of its descriptions and as you mentioned maybe too much i don't know but i'm enjoying it so fuck you yeah whoops okay cool with that we move into <laughs> i was wondering if i could say something there but i can't so i he heed out of it which is not a thing that i'm going to make happen ever again never going to do it again you will <laughs> you'll forget yeah uh, probably so with that chapter eight moving into the next chapter here we have our logbook of course it is too easy for people to characterize Rune as a simple force of destruction. 
think rather of ruin as intelligent decay, not simply chaos, but a force that sought that sought in a rational and dangerous way to break everything down to its most basic forms. Rune could plan and carefully plot, knowing if he built one thing up, he could use it to knock down two others. The nature of the world is that when we create something, we often destroy something else in the process. So this is making me really realize how much I don't understand about Ruin at this point and just want to. He, it... I guess seems more like a force of nature than an individual sentient entity, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. It does have that perception and it's even, I think it's all the way at the very end of this week's reading with Marsh where he get where he like even questions if it's just a force or a creature, like something literal or, and ruin is controlling him. So that's even more interesting because he is, actively being influenced by this thing and doesn't have a complete understanding you know what i mean like he doesn't even know and maybe that's intentional maybe maybe it's an intentional way to ensure that there's more reverence for ruin's power to keep it kind of shadowed even amongst the people that it's controlling it makes the thing seem more godlike too you know, like mm-hmm. it adds to the, like you said, the the shadow, the mystique of this force creature thing. Yeah. Yeah. That we don't really know yet. So there's a lot of really lovely language in the beginning of this book here describing some of the scenes really setting us firmly in the world to start off. Um, the one that gets me are the changes in the mist and how they're behaving kind of like tendrils reaching up from the ground. And, you know, you just get this very interesting mystique of the mist, the deepness. Um, what do you think about the mist and its newfound propensity to kill and the mystery that surrounds the scant deaths and subsequent immunity? So I would have thought about this as sort of a response to and function of Ruin's release, but it was already happening before mm-hmm. that to a lesser extent, but it was, it was progressing. So maybe this isn't something that's controlled by Ruin, but is maybe being pushed along its process by it accelerated whatever it is i don't know there's there is a comment in one of tensoon's chapters i think and maybe maybe it's during the trial but it's relevant here so i'm going to bring it up and that's the the other capitalized seemingly similar entity called persistence i think preservation preservation it's in a logbook entry so i don't feel like it's cheating because i'm going to read it in two minutes okay yeah so that seems like a balancing force Mm. if you will so it, it going along the idea of force of nature those two would balance each other out to a certain degree and ruin has been released and is able to kind of tip the scale in whatever this balancing act is Working theory, I don't know what to make of it yet. Don't know enough. Sure. But. Okay. I, I mean, I, I think that that is something that we're being kind of pointed in the direction of while reading this logbook as well, is it's kind of, it's going back and forth and kind of showing us the, the way that these two things kind of interact. And by that, I mean very vaguely. I don't mean that they actually interact. I just mean in the most vaguest of contexts, mm-hmm. there appears to be kind of like the balance, like you were saying. Yeah. yeah. So, Yeah. The perspective here, again, is interesting and shows us the power of Vin's tin. It, it's kind of 
it's fascinating because she's basically watching Ellen from a long distance away using tin to pierce the the mist to be able to kind of listen in on this conversation and see what's going on. But it does feel like it's a weird third person distant perspective like we were talking about before, even though all of the thoughts are colored with Vin's thoughts. So like everything is still through Vin's perspective and we don't get any of like Ellen's internal monologue in this moment, but we do we do see Ellen. It's predominantly like an Ellen start to the chapter, but told through Vin's eyes from like maybe a half mile away. I don't know how far she is, but you know, she's sitting on a stump hanging out. Lots of stump sitting this week too. Tin is a weird one. Now again, this is, this is what I sent you a question about and you laughed at me in emoji form. <laughs> I did. I'm really um, excited to laugh at you physically right now. <laughs> I'm wondering if, so, so there's a quote. And I know I sent it to you, so I'm going to just look at my text messages. She couldn't burn much tin, lest the sunlight blind her, but without it, she couldn't pierce the mists. So, she is able to... It's not an on... It's not a binary for her. Mm -hmm. Very obviously now, in this one, like, it was shown a few different times in different metals, but that's not how the rules have been defined for us, so I'm wondering if that's something unique to Vin and Ellen. I can't remember if like he seems to exhibit the same properties with his strength or with, with steel pushing. And so is it unique to those two? Is it unique to Mistborns in general? Is it just being able to ma- master the craft well enough to sort of see those nuances? What it reminds me of truly is the way that Sazed uses his Ferrakami increasing my suspicion that Vin has some sort of access to that as well. Talked about that a few different times throughout the past couple books, but still, still on my mind. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, yep. (laughs) This is literally what you texted me as a question. (laughs) I did literally respond by saying interesting in a text message and then sending an emoji after that. (laughs) I think you said fuck you or something like that. It's <laughs> interesting. It was pretty good. Anyway, the, oh, the point no. being. I responded with that like. Oh, the, the flat emoji the face. The flat face emoji. Yeah. Which is honestly my favorite. One of my favorite emojis. It's so good. Anyway, why are we talking? So, yeah, I, I really I really enjoy this section in particular because of kind of that perspective. And it also it does raise these questions again. You know, it does raise the questions of what exactly is going on with Vin, because we know that something is different about what she what she can do. Yeah. So a big Raffo on the rest of your statement, as well as Ellen and, and kind of that there. But, you know, it's it's yeah. definitely something to keep our eyes on. So I want to lodge. I want to take a second. And just like we did at the top of the episode, I want to remind everyone I lodged all of my complaints about Ellen at the beginning of last episode, and I'm going to not talk about it again. I assume because they pretty much vanish at this point. I mean, it's not it's not so much that those complaints aren't valid at this point. It's that we have explanation as to why he kind of thinks that way. We still don't have the year of time in which he made that transformation and change. But we do at the very least understand his current thought process. So it's kind of an important, you know, non sequitur. But I want to make sure that I, I said that here, you know, but it's it's apparent that in in his restraint that like he still has elements of the character that he had before in his restraint surrounding the death and the mists and even if there is that kind of like flare of heartlessness and inoculation he really wants to save the people more than anything else and it needed to happen eventually like everyone was going to need to be exposed to the mist and that's also something that we'll have to deal with when we talk about the soldiers 
but there is kind of a flare of heartlessness there. Like there's just another, this is something that eventually is going to have to happen. And it's not, I guess he's doing the best with the circumstances and it's kind of, it's not something that can be avoided. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't exactly blame him. It's, it's again, it's the practical thing to do. He sums it up nicely in a quote when talking with Fatrin. Fatrin asks, what kind of monsters are we staring out at all those people? And Elland replies, the kind that we have to be. And I think that really embodies Elland right now. I, I thought it perfectly reflected the core of Elland's thought process and decision making mm-hmm. through all of this. It, I, I felt like it proved against the idea of heartlessness. You can make the argument either way, truly, but... I was saying it's a flare. I don't think it's anything big to even, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I really, I, if you hadn't brought up that quote, I was going to. Because it's, it's a great quote and it's well executed in the section and the context to it's awesome. I mean, there's a there's quite a bit of that with Ellen talking that way now, of which I do do enjoy. He's, mm-hmm. he's He is still a philosopher emperor to some degree, but he is... He has to embody a very different philosophy and one that he doesn't really entirely agree with. So that said, definitely more to talk about there. We we then cut, I guess, not really because we were with uh, Vin the whole time, but we move to a ton of interesting information about the Coloss through the lens of human. Uh, the Coloss that <laughs> Vin had taken over during the fight, that sole Coloss that was hers. And, you know, what, what do you make about the questions that Vin asks him about how they reproduce and kind of human at large and the Coloss? Human. What a guy. I was giggling during his conversation with Vin and all of his explanations and his sort of cheeky response of what to call him being human. As far as what I think of the Coloss in general, it it was argued, I think, from Vin that the Coloss would basically exterminate themselves fairly quickly due to infighting. So there must be something biological to replenish their numbers. And I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that the infighting started after the Lord Ruler died because presumably he held control over them. And once that once he died, he they weren't controlled by anything anymore. So they were able to kind of fall back into their their base instincts, which was Created by the Lord Ruler, nonetheless, but there's 300,000 of them in the mountains that we've learned later through Marsh's perspective. So I, I think it was just kind of a standing army. They were maybe held in some sort of stasis to stunt aging and growth until needed. But beyond that, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. He does mention that the small ones come from us, so I don't know what to make of that. But I don't know if he really understands it either. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. that's I mean, I think that's I think that's a fair a fair question to ask at this point is, you know, how much do the Coloss know about their own reproduction? How intelligent are the Coloss? Human seems far more intelligent than we have assumed the Coloss to be up until this point. Even in the previous book, like we do have we do have some depictions, but it's mostly based on economy and like wanting to live like humans do, you know, and like wanting to take over the city to be, be people, which I think is, it's, it's, it's almost like childish and human actually portrays like adult intelligence to some degree. You know what I mean? A higher level of intelligence to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not nuanced very much, but there's, there's clearly intelligence there. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's it's fascinating. More more to come. It's it's really interesting that each of these books, and and this is something I don't feel like this is crazy or stepping out of bounds, but at this point in each of the books, we've had like a different member of a different group or like creature that was kind of unique to this world follow around Vin. The first was the terrorist men. They're really people. They're just slightly genetically different as a species. And then you've got, obviously we have the Chandra in Orsur of which we didn't really even fully understand, but it was actually Tensoon. And then we have human now of whom this is just a small thing at this point, but you know, it is another example of having these three different creatures. And on top of that, to mirror that we get, I think it's either the next log book or the following log book about the three metallic arts. Right. And it seems like each book kind of focused on a different art. Last book had a lot more ferrochemy in it. The first book is obviously mostly allomancy. Mm-hmm. And so far we're, we're teasing hemolurgy. So, right. Yeah. That's a good point. It's pretty interesting, you know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a cool structure to have built these three things, and then to also have each book kind of fixate on those, you know, three different components. Regarding the Lord Ruler, he utilized ferrochemy, and but is it possible that those ferrochemical bands that he used that were embedded in his skin were actually hemological? Great question. Thanks. I don't know. Hemological. Yeah. Hemological. Not hemological. You not a you thing. That's just, I know that that's the term because it's definitely, it's made mention, like it's used in that context. So mm-hmm. yeah, I would say that that's a great question. Okay, cool. Thanks. Yep. That's, uh, it's so, it's so funny. <laughs> you compare this to Red Rising and there's not nearly the plot questions like this, you know, like the, the world building is so fundamentally different in the way that like a lot of this, some of the mystery is the world building, you know? Right. Yeah. I also love the word bivouac, you know, bivouac is a great word. Never heard. I it really before. enjoy it. Yeah. Really? you no, never I'd heard ne- it before? I'd never heard that term before. It's generally used for like camping, right? B- b- yeah. Like, or kind of like a camping term, right? It is, it's so fun and it's, it's a weird word that you like don't see anywhere. And, you know, I just think it's really great. Mm-hmm. I really love it. I love when I can see it. We run into at the bivouac troops, we run into General Demu here and the 50,000 men that follow him. It's great that Demu has become this general from, you know, guard to captain to general, which I think is kind of a fun path for him to be on. I find Vin's note about the survivor's spear that he wears really interesting and, and something definitely worth remarking on topping talking about because we are still feeling the impact of Kelsier all over the story. Obviously, again, this part, like the first part of each of the books is named after him, the survivor, right? So I think this is what Legend of the Survivor or Legacy of the Survivor, sorry, is what this one is. But we we have all these different bits, but I think that the religious angle on him, especially through Ellen and Demu, is absolutely fascinating. It is it is really crazy to see this myth become a religion, like solidify. Yeah, it is. I'm not really sure if it's worth noting or, or discussing more on, but I'm going to bring it up. So we're going to. There's, there's the very obvious comparison to Jesus and the cross and uh, how odd it really is that that became the symbol. It makes me wonder again about Granderson's personal like thoughts and feelings on Christianity and faith in general while writing this like th- this is this is a difficult thing to write from a perspective of a deeply religious person you know it feels like it should be 
it, especially with the the like number of different religions talking about different faiths and like the idea. And that's why I think that this story ends up being a very interesting story with faith all over it is because it's it's about belief to some degree and like having faith in things. But it's not saying that any faith is right either, you know, and as a deeply religious person, I think that's what's fascinating about it from from Brandon's perspective and how like being open minded enough to write something about something like this that basically says that faith is a good thing, but can easily be manipulated, as we see in the second book and can be absolutely twisted. And how a faith grows is is, I think, a fascinating bonus inside of the story that said relating to the spear. And I know that I've said that I wasn't going to talk about these, but I love this annotation that he has about this. So I'm going to read it. It doesn't do anything for the story. It's just a little note here that I wanted to give you because I really liked it. And I remembered it right when you had put that in. So it says, I'm not trying to. So the symbol of the spear, I'm not trying to overtly duplicate Christianity with the spear becoming the symbol of the church of the survivor, much like a cross, the cross became for Christians. It just seemed like a very natural symbol, and I do very much like playing with the idea of how a religion grows and changes from a loose set of beliefs into an organized theology. So literally kind of what you were poking at. I don't believe him. <laughs> you don't believe that it's a no. natural? I think it's uh, kind of no, natural. No, like no, I don't believe that he didn't have it on his mind when he wrote that. Like uh, That seems like such an obvious comparison. I, I'm just saying overt. You know, he's not drawing an overt He's not trying to draw an over. That's what I'm saying. I don't believe. Yeah, sure. Sure. I just I think I think that it's a fun thing. And this is one of those that it's like, well, that question has been answered. So I kind of wanted to bring it up and I I prefer I prefer interpreting it. And definitely I think the interpretation Mm. is always going to be much more interesting. But I do find it that one to be kind of fun because he, he did directly bring it up. He's like. Guys, I wasn't trying to. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It probably came off a little obvious and strong, huh? So so that's not really the question that I was trying to pose. It was yeah. more it's more about his. Yes, right. His right. thoughts on on religion as a whole that I'm curious about. But like we've mentioned before, that's a very deeply personal thing that I don't I don't believe he is like obligated to talk about. Yeah, right. You know, I, I want to make mention of this again. Ellen has this conversation with Fatrin um, that I think is really critical to comparing his character to what we were talking about last week. This week, he's much clearer with those ideals, like we were saying. But I, I think in the second conversation, he also kind of gets to the heart of things a little bit more with, you know, the idea of these men having the choice to join the army if they want to or to go farm. And I think that that gets to the idea of what he actually wants to be and represent more than what's the term that he uses. I think compelling. Yeah, I think he he says, yeah, compels or compelled them to do the things before. But now it's now it's choice. Yeah, he makes the comparison to a drowning man pushing against help. So that was the situation they were in before, but now that they're out of it, it's it's free choice, and that makes a ton of sense given Ellen's character and what we know about his ideals. Yeah, yeah, I I think that's totally it. Is that this is the moment for him to kind of come back and refocus on on those ideals in a, in a big way. I'm stumbling through this, but I absolutely agree with you. I think that the, like that is. He is he is showing that he hasn't entirely sacrificed those ideals and the altered practicality like I was making the point of last week. But it is like helping that drowning man. It's doing the necessary thing while it's necessary and then, you know, reverting to what what needs to be done. So I also liked when we were talking about it that we compared it to like a national weather emergency or something like that in how it's treated. You know, you have to respond to help to fix things and then 
after the emergency is done, you can revert powers and, and go back to the way that things were. So ideally, ideally, right it, not, it doesn't always happen. But, you know, truth be told, that is the that is the intent of a lot of those things. So the final lines of this chapter talking about the meeting that they're going to have is such a fascinating turn for Ellen in, in kind of I don't I don't think it's a bad thing. I just think that it's such an interesting thing for our hero to say, which is so uncommon. Right. So Ellen says conquering the world, Dumu, or at least what's left of it. And it a like this feels kind of pinky in the brainy in the way that they, they're talking to each other and like, well, what, what are we doing tonight? And it feels very pinky in the brainy in a fun way. But at the same time, it, it's a very sullen comment about the fact that he even has to do this. There's just a lot going on there. This is a very complex, yeah. complex thought think, that Ellen's wrestling. I think sullen is absolutely the right term to describe the feeling here. It, it is a conquest of necessity and compassion from Ellen's perspective, but it, it's still a conquest nonetheless. Mm-hmm. That he's going to have to conduct. And I don't think he feels good about that. No, I don't. I don't think so either. I think that he, he does feel bad about taking away people's sovereignty, which I guess is a good thing to feel. But then why are you, you know, the answer is we're doing this out of necessity. I understand. I don't need to actually go down that <laughs> train of thought because I get it and he gets it. But I think that he he is actively wrestling with that quite a bit. That's also I, I forget if it's this chapter that he also goes into the tent because he's like very tired i think so he and he like very clearly from vin's perspective he stops burning pewter and he suddenly seems very tired i uh, guess i think that's this chapter it might be the next one but i i cannot recall i i, I really think it's this one moment. i don't i don't know. i think it's this one too i think it's after he sends fatrin away he mentions going into the tent and then they talk in two chapters or what have you so yeah cool all right, with that, we go into chapter nine here. We've got our logbook. As usual, Alamancy was indeed born with the mists, or at least Alamancy began at the same time as the mist first appearances. When Rashik took the power at the Well of Ascension, he became aware of certain things. Some were whispered to him by Rune. Others were granted to him as an instinctive part of the power. One of them was under the understanding of the three metal arts. He knew, for instance, that the nuggets of metal in the Chamber of Ascension could make those who ingested them into Mistborn. These were, after all, fractions of the very power in the well itself. The almighty chicken nugget. The chicken nugget of power. Yeah. Oh, man. It is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this, and now I'm, I imagine it more misshapen now, too. You know what I mean? Like, that's the other part. Like, it's not it, it was almost perfectly spherical in my head in the previous book. And now I just imagine it in like the rough chicken nuggy form. And it, it like doesn't. Yeah, it's probably a boot <laughs> or or like a liver, <laughs> you know, whatever that looks like. Well, the there's the four, there, there's the four McDonald's chicken nugget shapes that they have. One of them is the boot You're shapes. Not, they, there are four specific shapes. Yeah. Well, um, I didn't know that. That's really so, funny. I genuinely um, didn't know that. Yeah, there's the the boot, the ball, the bell and the bone. That's fascinating. I'm super curious now. I'm going to have to look into that more i mean that's all there is to it yeah i'm assuming it makes it look more natural having having a variety of shapes make it look less processed (laughs) yeah yeah oh exactly and it it would add some consistency to the chicken nuggets as well you know like consistency when ordering as well like you, you also are always going to have like the same portions or nearly the same portions when you're punching out chicken nuggies out of a mold like this of which 
Yeah. I'm also just now imagining punching out chicken nuggies like out of a like you get a square nugget, like a giant square nugget, and it's just like a press. <laughs> and then on the other side, it's exactly probably what, what it is. is. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, I don't think I'm being dramatic or <laughs> exaggerating at all, but that is mm-hmm. it is very funny to me. <laughs> now I am yeah. giggling about it. Yeah. Hmm. Three metallic arts we talked about. Obviously, you were going to say more about the nugget that was more interesting than going down the McDonald's chicken nuggy train. What were you thinking? No, I was just talking about the nugget, I think. So, I, but this is something that I believe you and I have brought up before regarding the start of Alamancy being about the same time as the start of the mists and how they're connected, if they're connected, what, what, the, what the draw is, like where, where are the lines? It just confirms that they started at the same time and doesn't give any more answers beyond that. But yeah, um, I, and it it gives us kind of a, a window into time to some degree to be like, oh, okay, so it was the origin of Alamancy was when the final empire really got going. Like when Rashik was really kind of he didn't create Alamancy, it doesn't seem, but no, because he finds the nuggets. Yeah, so he didn't create Alamancy. That's confirmed. But yeah, he he didn't create it. There was also we knew Ferricamy existed beforehand based on yes, Blendy's accounts. But then again, and Quans. Oh, Quans, Quans too as well. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 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 I was going to say could have been fucked with, but Quans right. could not have. Yeah. Did I ever bring up the meta text of like you can't trust the second book at all, like all of it? And isn't that kind of funny that you can't trust the book? I think I did in the wrap up episode. Maybe. There's some fun meta text stuff about the idea that you can't trust anything written in metal and you're reading a paper book. Yep. Um, yep. We need to talk about so, that. Yeah. And then there's like you can also connect that to digital and physical media, like the idea that like Disney can now go in and like make edits to a old TV show and like publish it. And it's like, well, that wasn't there before. Anyway, cool. All right. With that, we move into the rest of chapter nine. We finally get a name for something um, within the Chandra homeland. You know, that's kind of what we know know it as the trust warren. And this is kind of an interesting thing. I find the Chandra fascinating because they're kind of like I imagine them like lawyer slugs almost like they're all lawyers as people. Basically, like, think about it. Contra are like lawyers, but they're like, they're also slugs that, that have like an internal shell, you know, like you said, jewelry, art, you know, however, however you want to think about it. But they are all basically lawyers, which is such a funny trait that they all share. Immortal lawyers. What hell is this? And why do I like it so much? But anyway, the trust Warren. So we find out even more about the third generation of the group of folks involved there in raising the Chandra and that their society is about 700 years old or so. It also begins to paint a picture for us, that of the father that we're obviously going to talk about more. Yeah, I'm I'm just loving getting more of this background. I'm gobbling it up. I fucking mm. love it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I think I said this earlier. If Brandon didn't create things that were so interesting, like if it wasn't so fucking interesting, I would feel like I'm being told not shown everything. But because it's so good, like it's such an interesting concept, I can't even pull it apart because like my attention is absolutely held. I think Mm -hmm. they call that fridge logic to some degree. Like I, I think I talked about that term on the show before. If I haven't, fridge logic is where if you're watching a movie or like a TV show or something and you pause it. And you pull yourself out of the experience for a second to think about something. So like you get up and you go to your fridge, right? And you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. It only doesn't make sense because you aren't you're no longer paying attention to the medium that it's in. And so okay. you're you're enraptured by the world or whatever it is that you are a part of. 
And the moment that you pause it is when like and you're doing something completely different and then you think and consider it. It's like that's not a like it can it can be genuine critique, but you were sucked into the world. You were enjoying it. The only reason you're taken out is because you took yourself out. That you know? makes a ton of sense. Yeah. 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 It's like so like what you do to me sometimes. every week. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do literally <laughs> fridge logic you every week. So yeah, it, this is literally fridge logic. The show. Fuck. Good point. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Also, I'm gobbling up the background, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're also introduced to other Condra here in the second generation. Con Par, who will be leading the trial, it appears. And they are not very happy. It's a she, isn't it? I put he. Is it she? I think it's he. I don't know. The red bone bitch is what it is. I don't know. <laughs> I can completely understand the dissatisfaction of having to go through this entire process, though. Yeah. Right. But they live within, like you said, they're all lawyers. They live within bureaucracy, and that's where they shall stay. Yes. Fucking take yes. it. Yeah. Yeah. Also, Kempar he. But yeah. Yeah, they do live with, Kempar is a he. They do okay. live within this 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 state, though, and that is, <laughs> you have to fucking deal with it. Yeah. I can't believe, I. It it's just it's fascinating that I love this so much, but it is because it just seems like something that wouldn't be entertaining. Like on paper, it's like, oh, yes, we're going to have these weird creatures try each other kind of in front of for, for some reason. And they're going to be rendering. And it's, you know, like, I guess I guess trial movies are fun. I Yeah. yeah OK, this is it reminds it's me rules. because of the, because it's topical because yeah. of uh, most recent PJ Symposium, the conclusion of the Chernobyl miniseries. It's entirely about a show trial. <laughs> I had that on my mind when reading this and I don't know, entertaining, kind of fun, frustrating at times. But yeah. Oh yeah. Very frustrating at times, especially when we get into the actual trial. Cause right now we're, we're really just more background, right? And we see, including some of these younger generations that we were talking about, we see Milan and I love how the younger generations are described as kind of pushing these boundaries and she's no exception. Her body isn't wood. Her body is one of her friends is wood. Isn't hers? No, sh- sh- hers, is, hers is wood. Oh, hers is wood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the fact that this trial is also positioned as a way for them to potentially control the orthodoxy better and like rein in those younger generations as well, I think is really, really interesting. It's, yeah, you know, it's, it's so cool. In a good way, mm-hmm. I imagine Milan to kind of be like, evocative of a witch doctor from the diablo series like that's the imagery that i'm kind of getting off of this sort of elongated spindly arms and uh wooden bones but in general i loved the little bit of description that we got from some of the seventh generation members specifically the one with four arms that's super dope why don't more (laughs) of them do that that's gotta be helpful right it's like goro yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like four four arms. Like no one in Mortal Kombat should stand a chance. No, the Chondra could kill all the humans. Like that's that's the reality here. There are very, there aren't that many of them. That's what we kind of know about this is that there's only compared to like the Coloss of which are almost innumerable. They say like each generation is a couple hundred or something like that. I think at this at this point, I, and like even they don't, they don't about a hundred. I thought they said yeah. So, yeah, that sounds that sounds right. So maybe a thousand, maybe less, maybe a little bit more less with like there's there's questions of if there's even any first generation left at all. All of the second generation are at a table in front of Tensoon. Right. 
so like there's just a few of the first three generations as as we're made to understand yeah yeah i think the third one might have been larger but they they were getting larger and larger over time but they did start very small well and they were purged by the mistborn and that's that's why Tensoon, yes. as part of the third generation forged this contract to stop mm-hmm. the killing right which is fascinating and we definitely have to mm-hmm. talk about the fact that Tensoon was a part of making that contract because there is there there are some fun implications there yeah yeah cool all right chapter 10 we start off with the logbook nuggets of pure alamancy the power of <laughs> preservation itself why Rashik left one of those nuggets at the Well of Ascension, I do not know. Perhaps he didn't see it, or perhaps he intended to save it to bestow upon a fortunate servant. Perhaps he feared that someday he would lose his powers and would need that nugget to grant him alamancy. Either way, I bless Rashik for his oversight, for without that nugget, Elend would have died that day at the Well. So, the only thing I can really add about this one, there's a couple things, actually. He says nugget in every sentence. <laughs> there's nugget in every <laughs> sentence wasn't there a few of them there were a couple i think there are two i think he says and that there, th- are, there is, are many plates there yeah but there were only a couple with with nuggets but this makes it feel like or this makes it seem like there was only one which what happened to the other nugget did you eat my other nugget i am a consumer i of specifically nuggets. had two nuggets i was saving them you did not <laughs> ask me for one of my nuggets i want to laugh uncontrollably right now but I know the context for you makes no sense. And I, I think it's very, I think I am very funny. I think it was stolen and hidden by mm. somebody. But who, who, who would but do who? that? Who would dare? Who would dare? Mm. Mm. Yeah. I've got ideas. Okay. We'll and find out. I mean, it also, Alamancy directly gets attached to preservation here, right? That's the other thing. So, yeah. I mean, we kind of knew that already through pewter. Through what? Oh, I, you meant preservation in like the capital word sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I thought you were talking about pewter and like no healing properties. I understand. Yeah. Okay. There is, there, there is the comment on preservation in this. I feel like it also exists within Tensoon's commentary because I remember it being with ruin in the same sentence or at least right. Yeah. So in the previous book, that's why I did read it to you last episode. Um, is just to see if you would catch it and you Mm. didn't say anything about it that's why i read it out loud because i was like i'm gonna see if pj comments on that i was like i i I think i verbatim said something like it seems unfair to just mention this and not read it in context to give you context i think that is verbatim what i said or very close and so then i read it and like ruin and preservation are right next to each other you can't see that of course because i was reading it but it was right there I did say there was a capital P though. I remember that was, that was pretty bastardly of me giving me context and stuff. Yeah, I tried (laughs) because it was from the previous book too. I tried really hard with that one. Mm -hmm. I mean, I tried to at the very least point you in the right direction because preservation would have been mentioned a couple of times. Well, no, it it was, I read it today. I know it's in this book in this section. Oh no. Tensoon talks about preservation and ruin. No, this is the first mention. Well, maybe later. Yes. Okay. Okay. In 109, this is the first mention of preservation in the book, though. Gotcha. It is It is in this section, but... Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. Yes, later he says rune and preservation. Cool. All right. Mm-hmm. We are back, though, with Sazed working through religions again through his kind of voice and in, in, in his head. And Larsted, 
larstatism, 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 larstatism is the faith that he is interrogating right now. And it's also the faith that he married Ellen and Vin with. And ultimately, it's also Mare's faith. And so there's there's kind of a lot of connective tissue here. And to see this faith torn down, man, is is fascinating because so much of the story has been propelled by this one faith mm-hmm. in different chunks and parts. And the the way that he discredits this one is shaky at best. It seems out of spite more than an actual like logic reason like the rest of them have been. He's equating this long dead view of the physical world to today's clearly like altered and corrupt version. And it's dishonest at best to say that this contradict what what does he say observed truths or something like that yeah this this is very much the personification of sometimes you have a hammer everything looks like a nail like he Mm -hmm. is he's like i have to make a decision and any good scholar would instead go no i don't have to make a decision but i do eventually need an answer so like this is one that you feel like if you were really trying to be honest about it like you're saying you would leave that one on the table and Go to the next one, potentially. Yeah. Um, he wants to discredit all of these religions. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. Everything looks like a nail to him, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe he's resigned himself to the idea that there is no greater meaning. And as long as he can prove that, he can feel good about his newfound nihilism. <laughs> I think that's exactly what he's doing. I think I'd spot on in terms of kind of what's going on and yet yeah, newfound nihilism for sure he is he is just buried in his own his own shit i think inside of the future spoilers or no spoilers zone or something like that we were talking about very different characters but we were trying to delineate between sad boy and emo boy because they are different <laughs> like what'd you um, come up with for the, uh, for the delineation? I, we we really didn't draw the delineation but we did lump our characters into the group differently to make it make sense okay Ephraim is a sad boy and a different character is an emo boy. Yeah. So that was kind of the, the comparison. I think I think it had something to do with being annoying <laughs> about it, too, which is just weird. again, probably not scientific, probably looking for a nail <laughs> with a hammer. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's funny. But but it was pretty good. So I, I love the conversational flair that Breeze layers in and adds to the story as well. His comments on the ash being unimaginative, I think, is hilarious. Where he's like, well, if I was if I was doing it, I'd make it fucking red like red. The rivers would run red and they would look like blood like that would be so fucking cool. It kind of feels <laughs> like Brandon's also like my editor shot me down. <laughs> the ash was supposed to be red. There, There's also like that little like climate change through line in the story as well that I think is kind of interesting especially from Sazed's perspective where he's like like he he's like uh, i think he says something like this is natural like he goes into like this weird like well maybe the climate's just changed, or maybe it's just a change maybe it's not <laughs> anything to do with it being evil or breezes and and it's just there's just a, a nice little nugget of funny um not a nugget of almantic power but a nugget of funny there despite also like we live in a society in which <laughs> People talk that way all the time about climate change, and it's very frustrating. That's true. But that's yeah. a good point. This whole conversation was reminiscent for me to like pre death of Kelsier mm. and the we, way that like, Bree, the way, the way that Breeze is. Yeah. Got it. It was fun for me to reminisce a little bit on that sort of 
conversation style that we've been missing, but then we get more of it later. So it's kind of overshadowed. Yeah, I I do. I do agree with you. I think that this is something that's been kind of missing and that I'm glad to see back in Breeze's character because he, he feels less burnt out like you did kind of in the last story. Like he he was in a great place and he was a great character and he was still fun, but it did feel like he was potentially just waiting for death to eventually come like everyone in that story was you know mm-hmm. while they were in so there is like a little bit more hopefulness you know as he's like like we talked last week like he's regained a little bit of weight and like he's you know it's just kind of in better sorts i think some of that also has to do with all Rianne, of whom we'll talk about in a moment here and kind of the way that that relationship seems to be more honest and good for him good for like his spirit to not like contain those feelings i think in that way or to be like you know yeah yeah he's got a better approach to it but I do want to read this little quote here that I really liked because I there's so many quotes inside of Saints' perspective. Obviously, again, emo boy here in the moment talking about a lot of these things. I don't mean that. I don't mean that he's annoying. Please don't take that out of context. But the <laughs> the sense of despair inside Sazed wanted to snap that simply believing wasn't enough. Wishing and believing hadn't gotten him anywhere. It wouldn't change the fact that the plants were dying and that the world was ending. I, I just think that that is perfectly encompassing of Sazed's grief yeah it's such a stark difference from the Sazed that we used to know he was all in on the idea that hope was something worthy in its own right and it's just such a depressing turn that we've seen him go through our sad sad little sad depressed boy, boy. Yeah, yeah sad boy you're right he's probably a sad boy not an emo boy that also gets off the annoying train I like Sazed quite a bit in this story because he is actually his own foil, which is fascinating, you know, and and as a path for that character to walk, it's it's very, very interesting to follow. Right. So Captain Captain Goridel is here again, all the way from the end of the final empire. And that kind of kindness that Vin had showed forever ago has still made this massive difference. This guy has been useful. I, I think that this is this is something that I want to talk about because it goes all the way back to the final empire because she reflects in that moment that Kelsier would have just killed this guy, right? And it turns out he's been kind of instrumental in a couple of different moments in, in saving Vin's life, coming back and, like, saving and passing on the information to Ellen. And then in the last story, he had a couple of moments. And then here, I mean, he's a, he's a captain. He's important to the function of the army. And I, I just think that that's such a great juxtaposition of that decision-making and showing firmly how choosing to spare a life would have been better than the path that Kelsier ran down, you know? A- yeah. And that's that's a very, very good point to bring up. And hopefully Vin can take that. But I feel like she already has. She's already kind of come come around to the idea that her path is better than the one that Kelsier was kind of going down. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think she's definitely definitely there mentally. I just think it's a good reminder to the reader and to the listener. Like this is a thematic homecoming to some degree, especially when we consider that the name of the part is Legacy of the Survivor you know right so another example of how pushing against that legacy was actually a good thing as opposed to fully embracing it so mm-hmm. breeze and Alrian. so we have to talk about the riders of course that are approaching with captain gordell and that's Alrian. yay we love Alrian. woo mm. um yay your favorite you know the the entire conversation is really interesting because breeze is kind of avoiding marriage right so this is all from Sazed's perspective and he's he's like breeze is avoiding marriage out of not wanting to leave Alrian a widow so they're like very much in love and basically married is what the book says. 
even though like Sazed wouldn't probably have married them anyway. Like and he, he goes into like this depressing internal rant about like what even is official? What does official mean? It's just like, Oh dude, you are so far gone. Uh, yeah. What would you, what do you think about Aurean breeze and kind of the knowledge that they're married and kind of everything else there? So I didn't get such a warm feeling from breeze when they see her as much as I would have expected. So it kind of caught me off guard how far they're, relationship has progressed in the last year that we haven't seen them but it was like a sentence so like that's not much to take off good for breeze though like it's it's good for him to be in what i can only hope is a healthy relationship with a good person we'll see about that (laughs) i feel like we get a bit of a contradiction here though on breeze's age it it is firmly established now that he's in his mid-40s but i'm I am almost certain he was called like mid thirties in the last book. Kelsier was definitely called mid thirties. I don't remember Breeze. Yeah. I thought it was yeah. from Alrian's perspective when she's in Set's camp yeah. after everything. I thought she talked about his age not being as big of a like gap deal. Yeah. It wasn't that big of a gap, but she was kind of making Didn't someone it make the deal. joke twice the age. Yeah. Someone made that joke, like, but yeah. but I I could have sworn he was established as like 35 in that section. Yeah, I don't feel like you're wrong. I'm just trying to recall. Yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You know, it is it is important to say that like four years have passed since the very first novel. So some people have aged up. But you're saying last novel. So that's only been a year. But four years have passed. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Good question. I'll I'll double check. I'll double check. We'll that find later. out. Yeah, we'll it's not out. that important. Really, but it's not in my crazy extensive wiki that I use all the time. Thank you again, Coppermind and the 17th Shard for that. But yeah, thank you for the details. And I still can't use. Yeah, you're not going to be able to use it for a while, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not on the page, though. That was that was interesting to me. So, yeah. So a- any other thoughts about the, the marriage or anything like that with Orianne, the returning character, the way that they aren't quite pushing on each other's emotions the same way? I just still find her annoying and don't like her as a person. <laughs> so God damn it. <laughs> I don't know okay <laughs> all right Swallowed i don't trust her day. i still don't <laughs> trust her i mean that's that's fair enough i i get it i get it let me put it that way i i understand but yeah okay vin of course shows up this of course is a fantastic moment here between the two where they contemplate what exactly says it is now what do you make of him in this moment we've been talking about this a little bit back and forth being kind of the depressed broken person that he is but i think it, specifically in the way that he's even despondent to vin is different than he's he's vocalizing a lot more yeah he's broken and he's lost and depressed and spiteful at the universe i guess like that that's kind of the extent of the read that i've got on on him at this point just just beat down well especially the way that he like denies vin when she's talking about the faith and like the reasons to believe like we were citing previously that he's always kind of had in the previous books and even as I think Breeze said last week, like the the most faithful of us losing faith is, you know, frightening. Yeah, I, I think that this confrontation with Vin is is kind of like the opposite of all the other conversations, which really, I think, shows their their friendship moving from like really a mentor mentee relationship that it was from the first book. And then in the second book, it's more of like a close friend father figure. This is now I think I think that this is a father that needs help. And I I think that that's actually a really interesting thing 
to have a character go through with their kid being like, no, you you've been the good guy. You've been you've been this good example. And to have that conversation like that, there's just a good, open, honest, I don't know, level of communication. Yeah. Yeah. She's a good friend. Right. I I like the father daughter comparison. I think you brought that up last time as well. But more than anything, she's just a good person. It's right. Beautiful that she's able to recognize this pain that her very close friend is in and do what she can to try to alleviate it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know that we're in, I think we're in Sazen's perspective for all of this. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I'm I'm pretty sure. So, but we're, we're in Sazen's perspective. And when we've been in Vin's perspective, she seems like hungry, like she's chasing after something. Like she has this kind of like riled up energy of like, okay, we need to go to the next thing. We need to do the next thing. No, Ellen, you're doing the right thing. There's, there's a little bit of like, of race to her pace to do things right now. A hunger to get to the next lockbox room cash. But here it's like, she takes the time to slow down and really like be a good friend in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she does. Yeah. There's, there is this, this one thing that I want to say. Vin talks about like holding that power, the unimaginable power that was contained within the well, but also she talks about like that power and the deep power that of love that Sazed has taught her and trust and everything else. And to me, I think that's one of the most lovely parts of like all the books. It, it is kind of that, that like note of real growth and like, it's lovely, lovely, lovely moment. I said it like five times, but ugly tears, mm-hmm. ugly tears here. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah. She does mention like there, there's a there's a strange reaction from Sazed at one point where she mentions like the feeling of of holding the power before she compares it to anything to do with Sazed. He like perks up at the at the description of her talking about the power that she's held. Don't know what to make of that. If there's anything to make of that there, but yeah. And and there's also there's this quiet like after that happens after they talk about being the last of the keepers is he a keeper and whatnot there, he he says after you know a moment of silence i am doing what i can lady in my own way i must find the answers for myself before i can provide them to anyone else still have the etching delivered to my tent i promise that i will at least look at it and you know that's at the very least he is he's still being this active ambassador and we'll talk a little bit more about that in the next section when he's getting sent on his mission, but he is securing his own life mask before helping others, you know, like at the very least he's got his head on his shoulders enough to know that he needs to do that for himself before he can even do anything for anyone else. So Mm -hmm. I think that being conscious of that is a lot of the times for many people, most of the battle. Yeah. You know, I like that description too. Yeah. Life mask, the oxygen mask. Yeah. 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 I, I've heard that one too many times from my sister describing me getting things done. So help yourself before you help others, Crossland. So any other thoughts on this chapter? Mm, no, I think we covered everything. Yeah. I, I think we hit most of it. Only thing I'd end with is the idea of this, like the photo that Vin mm. gives of of the Lerastium. And then somehow he still kind of makes he had he made that decision before. Yeah. I don't know. It's just yeah about the faith being dead but at the very least you know we get a little bit of something positive out of the faith it's a it's a contradiction to that thought process that maybe he'll be able to maybe it'll plant something in him maybe it'll take root 
<laughs> maybe the picture of the flower will take root. Cool. All right. I'm going to read this very long um, <laughs> logbook entry here at the top of chapter 11. So the first contract off spoken of by the Chondra was originally just a series of promises made by the first generation to the Lord Ruler. They wrote these promises down and in so doing codified the first Chondra laws. They were worried about governing themselves independently of the Lord Ruler and his empire. So they took what they had written to him asking for his approval. He commanded it cast into steel, then personally scratched a signature into the bottom. This code was the first thing that a conjurer learned upon awakening from his or her life as a mistwraith. It contained commands to revere earlier generations, simple legal rights granted to each conjurer, provisions for creating new conjurer, and a demand for ultimate dedication to the Lord Ruler. Most disturbingly, the first contract contained a provision which, if invoked, would require the mass suicide of the entire conjurer. Holy fuck, I totally was sure that's what he was gunning for in this in this trial was invoking that mm. final mass suicide provision. But mm-hmm. I can't remember what we talked about. Was it revealed that like we we knew that Mistwraiths and Chandra were I think they were described to described as cousins. Yes. And I can't remember if I had called Chandra growed up mistwraiths or the other way around. No, you had said that. Yeah, you said okay. Chandra were growed growed up mistwraiths. Okay. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. I think we got some of it in the Well of Ascension that they were more connected, but all the way back in the Final Empire, that's when you said growed up mistwraiths because it's mm-hmm. it's near the end of that book is when we're introduced to that idea. Right. That's when yeah. we're really kind of introduced to Chandra in general, the whole trick. Yeah. Of, uh, oh God, what's How his name? Works. Yeah, but what's Orsur? the, what's the guy's name? I know it's Orsur. Renew? The Chandra. Renew. Yes, thank you. I couldn't remember Renew's name. <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm. well, what's his name? I don't remember, but yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, the idea of the contract and really getting it so formally told to us, I think in this facet, is really cool to get all of this clarity kind of in a really quick dose i mean i did make a joke that it's a long logbook it is long for a logbook i think it's the longest one so far but well i think chapter 12 is longer technically but it is a it is a long logbook entry and i think it's really it's really important and it delivers a lot of really great information um whoever is writing this logbook in the future as we've kind of determined after the end of the world is is certainly taking their time and is also jumping a little bit here and there hither to there yeah but so then again this doesn't have to be chronological as we've seen before like these could be completely separate sections of whatever text this is yes yeah i i do agree with you i just I find it funny that we move from like we are kind of logically staying in Chandra territory with the the preservation, the power of preservation, blah, 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 Alamancy. But it does jump from like Alamancy to Chandra. That's yeah, it's it's more of a common it's more commentary than it is a critique or anything. It's just like, you know, logbook Mm -hmm. doing its thing. Logbook and a logbook, you know, true. And so that trial that we've been talking about begins in earnest. I find the disdain the seconds and kind of conjure have at large for humans to be really fascinating like this idea that they use glowstones in many places and then they have oil in some but they often don't light the oil because they don't want to interact with humans at all 
Mm-hmm. It's really interesting, especially as they talk about Straff and Zane, and he begins to kind of plant the seeds about his connections with Vin here, and as so named a little bit later, the mother. Yeah, this is also the like they they jump in with this sort of attack about him killing Orsur, and he has a very very good argument about the fact that Orsur wasn't covered by the contract, and I really thought that should have had more sway but that's just kind of every argument that he has in general should have had more sway and this is this is a show trial that's all this feels like you know yeah okay Mm. yeah it is just a show trial though and you know that's that's why they do say i think the the line about this being this isn't i think it's much later but it's this isn't a trial this is a judgment which is such a powerful comeback that kampar has to to Orsur, or not because Orsur, to Tensoon. The point is super valid. He's already confessed his guilt. So with that respect, yeah, that that would make this a judgment hearing, not a trial. And it's all it it's all cover. You know what I mean? Like they want they wanted Tensoon to die so that he wouldn't talk about the contract. Now they're right. shouting really loudly because they want to ensure that the stuff doesn't get out about the contract and they don't want to pose questions on society and they don't want to force change, which is even like further echoed with his question about like, have you been outside lately to Kanpar? Like, have you seen what's going on outside? If you opened your window, it's very like Horton hears. I think Horton hears a who something like that. Very Horton hears a who where it's like the apocalypse is going on outside. If you look <laughs> like it's not a yeah. good time. You just got to look. I think he, he either says the last 10 years or the last hundred years. And I can't remember which. I think it's the last hundred years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You've been outside the last hundred years. It's like <laughs> biting. There's a lot of good biting commentary here um, between the two. Very entertaining dialogue. Very well mm-hmm. written. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of writing, Tensoon having helped write the contract is fascinating to me. I did not remember this detail. I did not remember this detail. And in reread, I was like, oh, fuck, that's even crazier that he had he kind of had a hand in this. But, you know, even then, the the way that these old conjurers are spinning it, man, it's it's full fucking defamation. They're going, you know, shouting down. This isn't a trial. Mm -hmm. This is that judgment. And he stands firm that he did not break his contract. And I think that makes for one of the most fun arguments inside of this is that because he was serving the first contract because Vin killed the Lord Ruler, she is, in fact, the mother replacing the father, even though there weren't necessarily provisions as such. She got that she was given the knowledge because she did kind of take the place there. His argument is that she took the place. That's doing so. I want the actual text of the first contract to see mm-hmm. if there is actually a provision there. Like if there is something that mentions the progression of ownership, I guess, of that title, but we don't have that text. <laughs> yeah. So. It it's something that feels like an interpretation, right? It's it's like strict constitutionalist versus interpreting the constitution, which I think is a fun, you know kind of maybe take on it too. but Tensoon seems so particular about the fact that he broke that contract because he was following the other one yes yeah like it, that that's the entire hinge of this argument is that there has to be some sort of provision that would grant vin as title of mother before he can I, even make that argument 
I think that he's interpreting it to make that argument, if that makes but sense. But interpreting what? I want to know what he's interpreting. Well, right, right. I mean, it's, it is a document that he wrote, which is the reason that I think he no, is also... No, he wrote the second one. Well, the first contract, it is no longer in existence. It was stamped into metal. Uh, I think that, that's the one that was stamped into metal and signed by the Lord Ruler. And then the other contract came after that, giving the Chandra rules about existing within society and being servants so they're not slaves. Are you, wait, the second contract, what the second fr- contract are you talking about? The one with Zane? Yeah, the, the contracts that they, or I guess not second, but the contracts that they create with whoever they're serving. Got it. Okay, so you wanted to see how the, how the first contract was written or the contract that was written to Zane. I'm trying to clarify here. It felt to me like the first contract, like yes. the first contract, yes, is something separate from what Tensoon helped write, because it felt like the first contract was written at the onset of the existence of the Chandra. Or am I completely getting this wrong? The one that was stamped into metal and signed by the Lord Ruler. Yeah, because that's 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 the the open here. The words are specific, Kanpar. I know them well. I helped write them. We were both there when the when these service contracts were created, using the first contract itself as a model. There you are. That's what that's what you're looking for. So yeah. there's blanket service contracts. Yes. That- so he wasn't there for writing the first contract, the suicide contract. He was writing the service contract for working for people with the. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. 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 I just wanted to add clarity there. Yes. Yeah, totally. So, so he's, he is arguing an interpretation of the first contract, which he did not write. Right. He is we also directly. And I want it. Yeah, we are all. He is also directly citing basically the service contracts that he was mm-hmm. a part of writing the model for. Right. Which is why he cites kind of it back in their face in uh, Campar's face. That just it, it got a little word soupy with the term contract. Yes. Yeah. We, so, were, we were just it was it was the word doesn't mean anything anymore because we've said it so many times on <laughs> contract contract con contract. So, yeah. Contra. Yeah. I con contra. <laughs> what does it mean? OK. <clears throat> and so then the firsts pass their judgment. Sentencing will occur in a month's time after we hear all of these arguments kind of back and forth between the two and some of the other seconds chime in here and there. But I think it's an important distinction to make here that the firsts did not pass judgment. The seconds did. The mm-hmm. first j- just didn't say anything. And Tensoon makes a comment, I think internally um, questioning whether or not the first actually are alive because they can't, they can't see up there. It's too dark. It's too far away. There's just human shaped blobs up there. So it's entirely possible that this, that there was some sort of coup and the seconds are entirely running the show. Do you think you there would, was a coup? I think so. I think that makes a ton of sense. Like this is a strange power dynamic to have the seconds passing the judgment on behalf of the firsts. Only if the firsts don't chime up and say anything in like support, like maybe not a coup, but it's deceptive at best if that's the case. And like, who knows what the, what the written doctrines are and how it's all set up, but I don't know. It it seems shady. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a fun, a fun thread to pull on for sure. Cool. 
All right. With that, we move into chapter 12, the longest chapter of the week. Actually, this one's this one's a long one. It's not the season one. It's this one. <laughs> that said, I think I tried to I tried to slim it down to make it reasonable to approach. We do have, again, another long logbook entry. So here it is. Rashek moved the Well of Ascension, obviously. It was very clear of him. It was very clever of him, perhaps the cleverest thing he did. He knew that the power would one day return to the well, for power such as this, the fundamental power by which the world itself was formed, does not simply run out. It can be used, and therefore diffused, but it will always be renewed. So knowing that rumors and tales would persist, Rashik changed the very landscape of the world. He put mountains in what became the north and named that location Terrace. Then he flattened his true homeland and built his capital there. He constructed his palace around that room at its heart, the room where he could meditate, the room that was a replica of his old hovel in Terrace, a refuge created during the last moments before his powers ran out. Most of that, I feel like we had all of that information in bits and pieces Mm -hmm. to a certain extent. The little refuge of his home in Terrace is a fun little bit and... Have they discovered that yet? Have they found that at all? Well, they would never. They would have never been able to find it. What do you mean? The, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? He, he got rid of Terrace as it was. Right. And he but turned. He... So like Kredik Shaw, that little center room inside the of the place room. is his hovel. The pooping room is his hovel. <laughs> okay. his, his old Terrace home. We've been we've been calling it the pooping room for a very long time, but that that is that's why it's covered with like the weird furs and it's kind of that exotic, okay. that strange feel. And that's why it feels so odd and off. And it's he literally made his tiny little house that he like grew up in, basically, and owned into a palace for like ruling over an empire. But he kept the little house as like this like memento or token of, you know, mm-hmm. okay. life. That makes sense. Yeah, cool. I think it's really I wasn't sure if that was like a sudden new thing that could be discovered. But then then this is written by our people, so Yeah. Yeah. Never. Yeah, this is this is someone who has some foresight, maybe. Or mm-hmm. has extra extra sight. Yeah. We know that this person is the hero of ages. So unfortunately. Yeah. As it goes. So the chapter opens up with a conversation about what is going on with Sazed and what can be done for the man who's lost his faith. And man, belonging to the church versus having faith as well that Vin puts on Elend was a strong swing. Like that was a right hook that connected with the jaw to me when I was reading it. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think the, the text sits there and luxuriates on it a whole lot, but uh that's that i think that's a fantastic comparison and i also think that's something that brandon's been poking at over the last two books has been you know what is faith versus you know belonging to something versus hope versus belief in general yeah so definitely a good point and it makes me question about what ellen actually does for or within the church at this point if anything or if it's strictly a a title that he's kept for himself member yeah it it does poke interestingly at that and it is something that would be nice to see more of to your point i agree yeah yeah i i think i think that it's it's fun to see that kind of poked at a little bit i think again brandon is doing a really good job of interrogating 
faith versus religion versus belief on the whole. So yeah, he is. I really, I really enjoy that about these books. So much of this, as Vin says, really is on Ellen's shoulders. And we pretty much spend the rest of the chapter dealing with that in detail. Like this idea that the world literally rests on Ellen's shoulders. That's that's what being an emperor is. He goes kind of through the circles that show how the world is quickly diminishing around Luthadel and and showing how the the encroachment and how it will increase and, you know, the farmable arable land that they'll have. To the point of where the crops won't be able to grow soon on Scadriel at all. They, they're predicting by next winter basically being fucked. Yeah. Having that map <laughs> is a daunting representation of how fucked they really are going forward mm-hmm. pretty soon. And I feel like it's a pretty brilliant way to inspire innovation and problem solving amongst the group. Having that sort of doomsday clock to a certain extent right on, right on the table for everybody to look at. We'll see if it comes, if anything comes of it, but I don't know. Yeah, we will see. It's nice to also have a clock in this story in general, something that gives us a sense of time and kind of puts us in a limiting factor to kind of understand the threat, especially since everything is so kind of esoteric as far as threats go. You know what I mean? Like this idea that we're fighting a ghostly entity or creature or force that makes itself manifest in these spiked inquisitors. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's weird. So this gives a sense of, okay, we're fighting against time. Here's our, here's our clock. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It Mm -hmm. is much more rooted in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It helps keep it there. Cause otherwise this could feel like just a giant faceless, um, threat they couldn't really do anything against and i have some more thoughts and commentary on that but velen elland is doing his best that he can to possibly hold everything together and but of course insecurity is just whispering in vin's ear as it does and says hope is for the foolish after all and i i just i like that little that little bit again god yeah. damn it though <laughs> green's yeah. back again fuck yeah but it's proven to be a useful tool for us to see sort of Vin's personal headspace and what sort of level of insecurity she's feeling. So I like that we have that sort of tool, but yeah, I wish she wasn't yeah. feeling so badly. Right. It It is nice. And it's, again, this is, this is a reminder, this first 120 pages, I mean, we're not, we're not completely through, but this is very much so kind of a reintroduction to characters and everything to like get us set up. It's like 120 pages before the story really kicks off to some degree yeah you know what i mean and i i do really enjoy this book but this is right now we're like setting up everything to actually see the chess pieces move with intention now if that makes sense set sass as they plan i think is also pretty great he's got some of the funniest bits in the chapter for sure as he you know is kind of just this this general asshole and in the previous book he literally had ellendell almost conquered it was it was on the verge of being taken over and the fact that he's now this like ally and leader and kind of kind of funny guy kind of dick just just makes for a a a real great moment they run through many details here i didn't want to like pick through each individual part so i'm just going to kind of summarize it here and we can talk about the whole plan as as a whole because it's kind of sprinkled throughout the chapter they're assessing the situation the the well is dried up of power we know that the storage catches as well as the two cities they need to find that they can kind of contend with that we have to talk about are going to be Urto 
which is the old venture stomping grounds, and then Fadrix, which is Set's old city, and the home of that final cache that we think may contain Atium, potentially, as Reen's whispers mention as well. Like, kind of. Like, the question is, is, is it, like, Vin's insecurity, or is it, like, I don't know. Yeah, um, there's... But... Good question there. Yeah. I'm fucking loving this entire story, man. It, mm-hmm. I, it has everything all at once. It is action and magic and physics and politics and strategy just smash together smashy smash smashy smash it's all of it is coming through in this like little meeting and it's really fun and exciting it's just exciting yeah yeah it is it is a very exciting book for that reason and this is kind of all of those things coming together in a in a big way and i mean there's there's a lot here that's going on and it it sets this part sets the tone for kind of where we're going to be going for the rest of the story. I think it sets the precedent and the tone about like, OK, so some of us are going to be going to Urto. Here's who's going to Urto. And then we've also got Fadrix, which is where we're going to need the Alamancers. You know, that's where I'm going to go and that's where Vin will go. And so says it and a couple of people are going to go over to Urto, take care of that, take care of what's going on there. They have to deal with King Yeoman. They want to, you know, solve this with diplomacy says it's just like can i can i not <laughs> yeah it says it's like can i not and they're like no you can't not ellen says that the lord ruler th- this is just this weird bit that comes out in this meeting right ellen says that the lord ruler wasn't even evil exactly that he just kind of got carried away and like i kind of think that he's right but at the same time obviously what the lord ruler did is deplorable this is one of those weird things that i i have trouble with at ellen's perspective where it's like yeah, he was just doing it to survive. Like he had to make adaptations, but he didn't need to enslave an entire people to like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like this is this is a little bit too much apologism. Yeah, a little bit. This is this is exactly the point that we were bringing up last week. You know, mm-hmm. I'm glad to see that Ellen is kind of holding that view and is able to art- articulate it a little bit more precisely than than I could or. Yeah, we could. I just did. Um, but yeah, there's uh, there's still that whole subjugation thing that has to be dealt with in mm-hmm. that argument. So just a little problem in that one. But yeah, and I mean, not just that, but the gradual extermination and sterilization of the terrorist people that um, too, the literal eugenics going on. So like, yeah, the Lord Ruler was dealing with a shitty hand, but he went. It's not that he just got carried away, Ellen, which is the quote. It's not that he just got carried away. <laughs> like, that's yeah. a little too soft a point. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's a pretty, that's a rough description, I think. Yeah. And then, you know, things really come to a head in this meeting and we're kind of interrupted, right? The strange occurrence that of an earthquake begins. And I, this is where I really kind of wanted to talk about the intangibility of this threat, right? Like, this is kind of the point in which... This whole thing feels like the world is is breaking down and is really destroying itself, which is where it's so important to have set this expectation to give this kind of personification of Rune to some degree through Marsh. This is just a masterfully crafted way of having an intangible big bad in the same way that like Sauron is kind of an intangible big bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything, everything is crumbling in this world. It's wild. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah. it's progressed 
slowly and persistently to the point where like most of these people aren't even reacting to the fact that there's a fucking earthquake going right strong enough right. to knock things over in the tent and they yeah. describe it as like a little one right and they're just very casual about it very yeah. casual about the whole thing reminds yeah. me of probably what most californians feel like with earthquakes <laughs> versus like how people who don't live in california feel um yeah that's fair it's it's one of those things on Twitter that you'll see every once in a while where people will be like, did you feel that? And that's how you know they're from California. Like if they don't have it in their profile, because everyone will tweet like, did you feel that? And you'll be like, ah, so you're from California. You're from California. You're from California. It's just a tell because it's like, yeah, yeah didn't do anything, though. You know? Yeah, it, it is. It is funny. It remind it just gave me that that image, that memory. But yeah. So diplomacy is the stick that on which Ellen leans to want to uh, take Fadrix, but he will invade if he has to to take the land from King Yeoman of whom is there with a violent coloss if he really needs to. And and that's again, it's, it's so it's a step. It's just all these like little he's just tiptoeing, uh, tiptoeing, tiptoeing a little bit of the wrong direction. But it's a, it's a necessary thing. We can kind of understand that, especially given the potential contents of that cash, right? So that's why we ultimately have to do that. And it's it's something that like Ham doesn't want to go along with. It's something that a lot of, you know, members of the crew don't don't necessarily initially kind of agree with or come around to. There's a little bit more uncertainty there. But Ellen is in charge, so they do kind of they kind of listen. As a part of that though, Sazed understands that his voice can still be heard and other people do. Sazed brings up something really important which is that his army will have to walk into the mists for the first time and take 15% casualties just from exposure. That's a pretty insane prospect. Yeah. At the same time, though, everybody's at those odds, right? So who they're attacking is also dealing with a 15% casualty rate just for being out there. But at, I guess they could... They could have been protected attack, up until this point. Yeah, they, they could have been protected. They could be inside. And they can stay inside until the siege happens, so maybe that's not so much of a problem. Yeah, I still want to know. They, they're they very matter-of-fact about the rules in which they, like, it's about one in six. Most of them survive, but some don't. It, animals are immune. Like, this feels intelligent in how it's being chosen, and it feels very much not just kind of a hazard of being in the mist, but rather a, like these people are being chosen for some reason. I don't know. Yeah. Don't have enough to, to make more of it than that, but there's something. There's definitely. Yeah, it is. That's an interesting take. Yep. Cool. 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 Sweet. I, I like Ellen also in this moment after kind of talking about the exposure in the mist and things like that and the deepness, you know, that we've, we've talked about in the whole as we've gone. Um, through this, I let Ellen finally asks about Kelsey or about the survivor, and he doesn't want to know about the religious figure that we've we've kind of come to know Kelsey as, but he wants to really be exposed to the real story of the man. And I think that's really great character building for me on Ellen's part to finally like kind of ask this and for us to get to hear it. I, I just think it reinforces the actual faith and belief that he has not only in, in like the church of the survivor potentially, but also in what the man meant for people. I, I yeah. love all the different takes here from Vin DeBries to Ham, just a man used people and made them better. And kind of how Ellen himself shapes up against that legend is what we're really kind of left with at the end of the scene. Yeah. I, I don't know that that was a lot of kind of thoughts scattered, scattered, 
scattered. I, I think what, what'd you think? This was an important conversation all around for everybody involved, except maybe set right off the bat. We get Demu jumping in and like going into the rhetoric and he's getting like, he gets kind of shut up a little bit and then gets to experience this like hand account from several different people about the person that he worships. So that's got to be pretty cool. The reminiscing has to be cathartic and valuable for a lot of them. Ellen gets the insight that he was looking for and just, I think reminiscing for most of them is, is the major contribution, but maybe, maybe a, an opportunity to refocus and, and remember where they came from, why they're here and how it all worked to, to begin with. I don't know if they'll actually start laughing and smiling all the time because it'll feel a little forced now that it's been brought up in a direct yeah. way. Right. But maybe there'll be more of a conscious effort to see the bright side of things. Mm-hmm. And that's better than nothing. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a great way to put it, is that like that was that is such, I think, an important takeaway too from who Kelsier was and what he really meant to these people is that he was the source of happiness. He was kind of a glowing, glowing thing and like the Lord Ruler couldn't take that away. I do find the the so not only do I think that maybe now, I think Alrianne even takes something away from this meeting. Yeah, Set might be. Oh, so I, I think forgot Set she was in there, too. She but, is. She yeah. says, isn't that like insensitive, I think, at one point or something like that? But instead, you know, I, I think mm-hmm. she was taking stuff away. She was obviously internalizing it. But I, I think in particular, I'm looking for it here. When Vin says that he was just a man, I, I just loved that commentary. He was a man, Vin said quietly, just a man. Yet you always knew he'd succeed. He made you be what he wanted you to be. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Kelsier. Like I said, Andrew. at this point with the with the story, we are officially 120 pages in and the story has begun. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, I, I like to think about the first part of this book is like a very long prologue because it does. It, and there there are good, great moments in here, but it does feel like. It's a lot to get to where we need to be, which is good because like like I was kind of complaining about last week, it felt like we just kind of we skipped ahead and started. And, you know, this book doesn't luxuriate in that it doesn't it doesn't spend a lot of time skipping. And I think you could have treated something like this, like a prologue in a different author's hand. I don't think it would have been as good. So mm-hmm. I am glad for what I read. I'm just trying not to come off as. A critical dipshit for no reason. With that, we have chapter 13 here. We've got our logbook, another short Marsh chapter, but here in the logbook, hemallergy, as it's called, because of the connection. Hemallergy, it is called because of the connection to blood. It is not a coincidence, I believe, that death is always involved in the transfer of powers via hemallergy. Marsh once described it as a messy process, not the adjective I would have chosen. It's not disturbing enough. Oh, so... A couple of things to take away from that. One, I just want more. Give mm-hmm. me gib, gib rules, <laughs> but an interesting or an important, I think, specification that's made there is transfer of powers. So does that mean that they can be, I don't, I don't know what it means. It's obviously always terrorismen based on our context, or it always has been terrorismen that are used as the, the sacrifice. Not sure if that's important due to their connection to Farrakami or not. Is the power in the spike? 
intrinsically and it's imbued into the person and that's considered a transfer? Can that spike be like reused for somebody else? It's making me really kind of question what's what's it all mean, Crossland? You're picking Where's at it all it. going? Yeah. Yeah, you're picking yeah. at it. Yeah. And I, I think this chapter does a really good job of making you pick at that a little bit because we go back with Marsh, of whom has 10 new spikes in him. And that makes him ostensibly the most powerful of the Inquisitors in the words in the text. Like, that's what's said. And and man, he is in an odd place still, of course. Um, we'll talk more about the powers, but being controlled by a crazy, all-powerful force will do that to you or creature or whatever this is, I guess. The, the fixation of Ruin being here or there is really interesting to me as well, that he could be elsewhere. Like, his attention is fixated in some other part, I think, is kind of the way that it's described. And that very much reminds me of like the eye of sauron as it's depicted in the lord of the rings movies looking around with the giant glow yeah man that's terrifying <laughs> and to know that he's like not in control for the most part is just horrible he's a prisoner in himself he's a prisoner and a tool yeah he's he's not having a great time let's, no. let's be no he's let's be real. he is is he sad boy or emo boy i'm not sure Ooh, I didn't. He, I didn't see the description. I didn't see the. I think he is saddest boy. <laughs> Marsh's Marsh's saddest boy. I think because, wow, <laughs> he's just waiting for a moment where he can <laughs> pull his own spike out. Like that's that he is like the definition of existence is pain in in the most high level version of that meme. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, but there's those ten new spikes. There's that fixation. Yeah, thoughts. What can they do? What can he do now? What can they do? Are they all different metals? Rules, Crossland. I want rules. <laughs> well, you don't get them here. I uh, know. So he thinks he thinks about Kelsier in this time as well, of course. His brother, Mare, her death and how he loved her as well and how they both, you know, both the brothers had this love and affection for Mare. And he blames Kelsier for all of this, you know, and I, I mean, all of this is in the literal state of the world, right? And in, in what had happened. Because this is, after all, kind of Kelsier's fault at large, as Marsh points out, to some degree. And and I, mean, I he, don't want to pin fault completely. But, you know, like, kind of. But he's he's not saying, like, I wish it hadn't happened. He's, yeah. He says it should have been me. Yeah. Like, it's jealousy mm -hmm. more than anything. Wait, wait. Are we talking um, about the marriage or are we talking about killing the Lord Ruler? Both. Is, does he attach the jealousy to ending the Lord Ruler? Yeah. He said it was me that, like... Oh, yeah. That, yep. that was yeah. uh, leading the You're Ska right. Rebellion entirely. It is jealousy. It's totally yeah. jealousy. Yeah. But then as far as Mira goes, like, I think we brought it up in one of the first episodes about, like, a possible love triangle between them. I had thought that maybe it was Mare and Marsh that were married and Kelsier yes. was kind of on the outside looking in. Or the, or it was, like, a sibling relationship. There, there was some sort of... You originally leaned sibling and then you eventually connected relationship yeah. dots. Yeah. Because there, there was the comment on their first meeting, something along the lines of, I loved her too, I think. Yeah. Yes. Something yeah. like that. So it, it was out in the open that they were both affectionate. I don't know. There was a question there, but it was kind of, it's kind of funny to see that more fleshed out specifically here. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a whole lot of feelings. It's, it's jealousy. It's regret for like quitting. Oh, what a month before the rebellion actually succeeded all all kinds of just sad boy emotions. 
that are coming through. Yeah, very, very sad, saddest boy emotions. And especially because these these feelings are coming flooding back and the sense of helplessness, I think specifically he cites as being like, damn you, Kelsier, like I felt helpless then and I feel helpless now. And that's why all of this is kind of circling around in him, Mm -hmm. which is so unfortunate because like Marsh was kind of an angry man before, like a little bit like he was upset, mostly at his brother, you know, like that's most of where that that kind of came from. And in general, he was a pretty good dude, especially teaching Vin. And now to see him like have crumbled this far is ouchy. Ouch. Like, I wish he would have died. He does, too. Like, yeah, for for everyone's sake, like it would have it would have been. A little bit of a better turn. Yeah. Marsh reminds us, of course, right to end this week. The only thing that Rune can't touch or see is inside a man's mind. And I find that fascinating. So Marsh makes a plan. He might be able to strike if he just sits still long enough and doesn't struggle against Rune for a very long time. And then he might be able to do something. What do you? Yeah. Well, I, I guess his his thought process, his idea is to just kind of remain still and go unnoticed until like until it would be most destructive to take himself out of the battle. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's that's his plan is to let Ruin create this plan around his existence and then take it away from him. I don't think that's going to work, man. I think the more he like gives up struggling the harder it is going to be for him to struggle and like oppose him later. Like it's just going to have a tighter and tighter grip on him. Even if he's not actually doing anything like that's my guess. It's not based on anything, but, but the fact that he's had such a terrible time of it so far that I can't imagine things getting better for him at this point. And by better, I mean fucking killing himself. Marsh in the no good, very bad four years, <laughs> but like the really bad last year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's, he's struggling. Like, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's clear. And like he wishes, and, and part of why I think I agree with your sentiment a little bit. I think it, I think you have a little bit more support than you're, you're giving it is the kind of context that is he enjoys it when ruin is occupying his mind and occupying his body because then the destruction looks beautiful because yeah. then like the ash falling looks beautiful and he isn't tolerating this painful existence that he doesn't want and doing these vile things that he has to see himself do, you know? So I think, I think you're right. I think that that solidifies his grip quite a bit yeah. or at the very least in an emotional context. So. But at the same time, he says something along the lines of ruin, not paying attention to him or not noticing him as long as he doesn't like move a finger. Mm-hmm. So maybe he's just kind of able to stay outside of any sort of attention. Maybe that's his plan. Like stay still. Their sight is based on motion. Something like that. I don't know. I don't know what the what the plan is. Oh man. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's really funny. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, that's it for this week in terms of kind of the book and the content. Next week, we are going to start part two, Cloth and Glass. Generally, we would do PJ's predictions here. I think I don't want to pay anything off when we don't have a drink because that's kind yeah, of it's kind of the point is to bet things. But there are a couple that have been answered here. I didn't specifically look through, but I know that we've talked about some of these things a couple we'll, of times. We'll go through so. all of them next yes. week. Yeah. So with that, next week, we are going to be reading chapters 14 through 20. So 14 through 20 up until kind of that 
21 barrier. So about the same length, mm-hmm. about the same. same so. so that's where we'll leave you for the week. Thank you as ever to Tim and Andrew for helping us keep our show's lights on and check out the links to our show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, websites, all in one very convenient location. Yes. And we also want to take a second today to thank our new barbacks, Ragnar, Al Thor, and Siri. Thank you very much for the support. Really means a lot to us to have you all on board and to have you both join this month was was awesome. It was it was in the same day, I think, which is cool. Like I it was just funny because it all happened within like 24 hours. We had like three people join the server, including Ben from Hallerpod and and whatnot. So Mm-hmm. I'm very excited. We've got a lot of new things coming over the course of the next week or so. We talked about it in our little devil's cut, but next next week, Tales of Kana will officially be releasing on mm-hmm. June 8th, episode one and two. So very exciting there. You can get all of that exciting information from us about all of the shows variously shared on Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Facebook. You can also... Email us any questions or commentary or anything like that at wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com. And if you have any thoughts like that, you should leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, as long as they've got that little review. It makes a world of difference in the recommendations. I know we we pitch this every once in a while, hardcore, but there, there's my hardcore pitch. Uh, you can also find us on patreon.com forward slash wordsandwhiskey, and you can get t-shirts on TeePublic. Follow our link inside of our and and other things, T-shirts, stickers, bags, little cute onesies. We we have someone who bought a onesie, and it's adorable. Very jealous. It's very cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was uh, fun. Thank to you see. all. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was so cool. Um, trying to think of anything else. If there's anything else fancy? Yeah, I feel like that's it. Yeah, for now. More yeah. announcements to come. Oh, lots of things. There was that one we're thing. Working on. There's a giveaway going on. Make sure that you enter the oh, giveaway. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Make sure that you enter the giveaway on um, Instagram or Facebook. Either way, very very easy to enter. Just go over to our Instagram page, check it out. Elantris hardcover giveaway, or not hardcover, leather-bound giveaway. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Beautiful book. Beautiful book. Very pretty. Cool. We'll see you next week. Bye.